At this time of year, we are all decorating inside, outside, and particularly meaningful are those symbols of Christmas. Yesterday I hung a star in the front of my home. It's a homemade star, which you can probably tell if you looked at it. But it has some lights so that it lights up at night. And it speaks to the community of the star of Bethlehem. And I presume most of us think about the star that guided the Magi from the east. We picture in our minds those three camels crossing a desert, when in fact we do not know how many there were or whether they rode camels indeed, or where they came from. But we do know there was a star that guided them, and ultimately a star that stopped over that little house where the Christ child was as they came to present their gifts. Two or three years ago, I spoke to you about that star. And today I would like to talk about another biblical concept of the star. You find it in the very last chapter of the Bible, in the 16th verse of Revelation 22, where Jesus speaks some of his final words to the church. And it's recorded that he said, I am the bright morning star. The Christmas star becomes the morning star. Now back in the days of Jesus, there was an agrarian society and the culture was centered in the economy that was generated by the planting and the harvesting of their crops. And they were very much aware of the heavens, aware of the movement of the stars. And indeed, it was the bright morning star that usually told them the time to plant and the time to harvest and predicted the rainy season. For it was the morning star that appeared just before the sun began to rise in the east. It was the very last star before the dawning of a brand new day. And we recall that in those days they had no lights on their tractors and harvesters. They couldn't work after dark nor before daylight. And so their day was limited, and they would rise before the sun rose in the morning and wait for the coming of the new day. Job chapter 38, we read that they charted the movement of the stars, like the Greeks, who had six different classes of stars, divided by their light and brilliance. And when a star was two and a half times as brilliant as a lower rated star, they would put the star in another division 
of their system. And their categories would grow as they found stars that were more brilliant. Well, Jesus said, I am the bright morning star. And as you watch the morning stars, as they come and they go, when the days become longer, there are more stars in the east because the sun rises later. And it's always that last star that we look for. In this case, the last star to announce the great change of the day, the coming of the day, the brilliance of a new era was the bright morning star. That's Jesus. And it was a meaningful symbol to the people who were living in his time. And so they knew what he said. And we can think of him as we see the stars this Christmas. Think of him as that brilliant morning star who announces a new day, a day of opportunity, a day of productivity, a day when people can be filled with goodness and joy because they have a task to accomplish that has a purpose, that they have a destiny in life. Jesus came to give us meaning. Well, it also implies that there was darkness, does it not? In Isaiah chapter 9, you read that the people who, who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. We dwell in darkness. We who live in this age, we know it well. We don't have to refer to the days of Jesus when the Caesars were ruling when there were gladiators that destroyed human beings for the entertainment of arenas packed with people and to the satisfaction of one named Caesar who called himself God. We do not have to think back to the time when life was so cheap that female infants were thrown into the garbage because they could not man the services of the nation and go out and fight to extend the empire. We do not have to think back to the time when many were slaves, used and abused by their masters who were out to achieve what they could for their own self-interests. We simply need look at our own day. and We find the darkness of the night. Indeed, it's a time when we need the bright morning star. Just this week, a teenager in the loop pulled a gun out of her purse and shot her friend twice because they had a skirmish and a disagreement. One violent crime every 17 seconds in this country. A violent murder every 22 minutes. We read about the man on the East Coast who unloaded two clips of 16 bullets each 
into the passengers at point-blank range as he walked through a train. People are beginning to wonder where the violence will take us because there seems to be no pattern, no rhyme, no reason. We know that banning handguns is one step in the right direction, but it doesn't touch what underlies all of the, the misery of the human soul today that prompts this kind of behavior. Nor does it explain why life is so cheap. So cheap as to be destroyed at the whim of anger and disgust or on a dare. In Lorraine, Ohio, two girls were arrested just before they were going to stab their English teacher to death to earn them a bet that they had with their classmates. Life means so little that girls in San Antonio in an initiation ceremony of the gangs is willing to have sex with HIV positive gang members. The agony and the, the heartache of loneliness, the reach for something of meaning today, we live in a dark time. story I would like to share with you. She woke alone in a room of the Newport Beach, California Marriott Luxury Hotel. On the desk she saw a folded piece of hotel stationery. She walked to the table, sat down, and unfolded the note. It said simply, it's been fun, Dave. She had met him at a health club, and he seemed to offer everything missing in her life. Two weeks before, she had quit her job, left her husband and her two preschool children. She must have sat at that table for a long time. She reflected on the disappointment of her parents and wondered about her children. Then she pulled a gun out of her bag and ended her life. Just after noon, a maid discovered the tragedy. The detective was the first to read the letter she left, and the note concluded, Don't weep for me. I am no longer human. As the police were removing the young woman's body from the room, Four floors below, in the Hotel Convention Center, a well-known Hollywood celebrity was concluding a New Age seminar. As the participants prepared to leave the hotel, the leader led them in one last exercise. She had them all raise their hands and chant three times, I am God, I am God, I am God. What a contrast as people struggle to find meaning in life, either becoming hopelessly frustrated or finding that an acclamation of divinity is going to somehow prop up their spirits 
and give them an idea of having importance and significance in life. The darkness around us is deepening, dear friends. And it doesn't take brilliance to see it. A short time ago, the Wall Street Journal noted the trend from 1960 until today. All the trends were negative, and the darkness deepens. And we're all longing for the hour when we can see the morning star, because then we know the day is about to dawn. And on this Christmas, we need to hear the Lord's word again. He said, I am the morning star, the bright morning star. And it's for him that human hearts are crying. How is he a morning star? We sing at this time of year, O come Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'm not sure we appreciate the significance of this term. The morning star is God with us. We tend to major on God for us in these days. We talk about getting our needs met. We find forgiveness in Christ. We find comfort in times of despair and sorrow. We want Jesus there when we think about death and contemplate passing through its portals. All fine. But how much more is Christ than simply for us in the satisfaction of our needs? Christmas is the dawning of the day that says God is more than just for us. He is with us. He is not a God sitting out in the universe, beyond space somewhere, dictating and directing the affairs of mankind. No, he has come into history. He's become one of us because he wanted to be with us. There's a beautiful text in the New Testament in which Jesus calls his disciples and says, I want to be with you, just to be with you. Think of what that means. When I need a plumber, I am glad to see him. He comes and he fix my, fixes my leaking sink or a broken pipe, whatever it might be, and then he leaves again. But while he's there, he's a good friend. He's doing just what I need on that occasion. Mr. Fix-It, and I love him. But then he's gone, and I don't call him again unless I have another plumbing problem. He's for me when I need him. All of his skills, all of his abilities are mine to employ. 
But most of the time I don't need him. I get along pretty well on my own. And the faucets work. And the sink drains. And why should I bother him? And sometimes today I think our religion is going in the same direction. We need to promise people things. We need a God who fixes things for us. But then so often the times are good and we don't need him, so we forget it. Why be religious when things are not hanging in the balance? But dear friends, that isn't what life is made of, is it? To be with something. You know the most valued time that you have with anyone is not when they come over to your house to fix something. It's when you're simply together. When people call you and want to spend an evening with you. Or want to take you on a vacation with them. Then you know you're their friend. They're not looking for anything to get fixed. They simply want to be with you. Do you think marriage, the most sacred of relationships, is built on satisfying a need? God forbid that any of us should get married because we have a need. We get married because we love. We want to be with someone, someone very special. And God said, I've come to be with you. That's the most wonderful thing about Christmas. It doesn't come because we are in deep trouble. Our troubles are all known to God. He sets them behind him. He doesn't judge us on the basis of our troubles. He judges us on the basis of who we are. His image bearers reflecting his own nature and character. He loved us and gave his son. and He wants to be with us. And indeed, at Christmas time, we celebrate the accomplishment and the issue of his love. And what can be more beautiful than that? I'm the bright morning star, said Jesus. I am Emmanuel. I come to be with you. It's a new day indeed when God is with us. And you find in this son of David glimmerings of the character of David. Remember that battle of Ziklag? The Amalekites had come and taken the city and plundered it and then burned it. And David came to rescue the people and he, he chased the Amalekites there in the field he found a young man lying on the ground. And he stopped and looked at him and said, Who are you? He said, I'm the armor bearer of an Amalekite officer. He left me here a few days ago because I'm ill. And he had no more use for me. And David picked him up and took him back to camp. And nursed him back to health. And the Amalekite became a most loyal servant for the rest of his life. A caring, 
loving God, reaching out to his people. The son of David who came to give us a new day in which to live, a new heart through which to give the love of God. We Christians who echo the character of that star who is the bright and morning star, ushering in a new day of hope and of purpose. The people around us need to see it. Dr. Thomas Gillespie, who is the president of Princeton Theological Seminary, reflecting on the present malaise, said the truth of the matter is that over the past quarter century, the church has not been able to transmit its faith to our children. We've written all kinds of books on success. We know how to make the systems that will channel our efforts to the achievement of our goals, but we've written almost nothing about the development of character. And it's very easy to change your methods and your morals when you're only out to achieve success and your objectives, particularly if you're saying nothing about character, values, and morality. Then comes the bright morning star who tells us that every person is so valuable that God is willing to come into the flesh to be one of us. And while we are yet transgressing all that he set for us to do, he dies for us to redeem and to cleanse and to heal and to give us a promising eternity. That's the message of Christmas that God so loved that he gives us his son. And we ought to keep it simple and not complicate it and remember how easy it is to reflect that morning star and announce the new day. I like the story of Norman Vincent Peale. Seems that he and Ruth brought back a Swiss girl to help with domestic affairs. And as it came to Christmas time, she watched the cards come and the gifts to the Peels. And she thought, what could I give? And then on Christmas Eve, she pulled her coat on and went down the streets of New York and found a department store and purchased a, a little dress for a little girl and had it gift wrapped. And she went over to the corner policeman and said, Sir, do you know of a poor family in the neighborhood? He said, No, and what's more, you shouldn't be wandering around this city. It's not safe. You'd better go home. But then she heard the tinkle of a little bell and she followed the sound to the Salvation Army worker and she said, Sir, do you know a poor family where I can give them a gift? He said, of course, but I'm on duty and it's a little while before I'll have a break. She said, I'll wait. And they took the taxi together across town, found the tenement house. And meanwhile, she had explained to him what she wanted to do. 
And he told her, up on the third floor, you find the family. Take your gift. She said, no, the gift is from God. Just tell them that someone wanted them to have this in the name of the Christ child. And so he delivered the present, and they went back in the cab. And she dropped him off and thanked him and went on to the house. And she said to the cab driver, what is the fare? And he said, there is none. Miss, just being with you is payment enough. Well, the next morning they opened their presents in the Peel home. And when they were all finished opening the packages, she said, I'm sorry, but I have no package for you. And she told them the story of the dress and the poor people. And she said, that was all I could think of to give you as a Christmas gift. And Dr. Peel said it was the finest gift of a lifetime. Jesus comes to teach us a very simple lesson. To live as he lived. To be godlike in our loving care. And to bring people the joy and the peace of a season we call Christmas time. For it is the bright morning star who ushers in a new day. And it's the new day that will be realized in this world when we Christians begin to live in its light. And the world needs to hear from us and to receive our deeds of love and of kindness. May you have a blessed Christmas as you plan to be an echo of that bright morning star. Let us pray. Lord God, grant us your spirit to lead and guide. And may we always walk in the footsteps of the Master with humility and gratitude and in the joy of his presence. Amen.
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you now and evermore. Amen. God be with you till we meet again. By these counsels, by the hold you, with the sheep securely fold you. God be with you till we meet I invite you to consider with me the two worlds of Christmas. You recall the coming of Jesus was predicted for many years, first as a child of a woman and then as part of the lineage of Abraham, then the house of David and it narrowed down to the fact that he would be born in Bethlehem, in Judea. And then there was the prophet who, who said something very curious about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. He said that his name would be called Everlasting Father, Mighty God. What kind of a person could this be? For in the context of those who worshipped the Creator, who did not even dare to take his name on their lips because of the, the awe and esteem with which they came to God, would say that a child was to be born whose name would be Mighty God. Then the New Testament cracks the door open on the mystery. We not only read of the lineage of Jesus in the Gospels, but John tells us that this was the Creator who was born, the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us, and in whom we saw all the grace and the truth of God himself. And it was Jesus who made the most explicit statements on his identity. For he said over and over that he was the one who came down from heaven. You recall in John 3 the discussion with Nicodemus, one of the rulers of Israel. The man who came at night wondering about the kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I'm not talking in mysteries except that you do not understand otherworldly things. Not surprising. But I am telling you things because I have descended from that world and I will ascend again to it. The very reason that I have the authority to speak is because I am from 
that other realm of reality that is so mysterious to you. The people followed Jesus for some time, and at the height of his popularity, after feeding more than 5,000 miraculously, we read in the record in John 6 that he again underscored his identity. And he said to them explicitly, I came down from heaven. I am one of you, circumcised, Recorded in Luke 2, I'm a very human being. Hebrews chapter 2 tells about it. Like us in every respect, tempted as we are, yet without falling for temptation and falling into sin. And yet he repeats again in that chapter, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. He talks about that world frequently. In fact, he says that what happens in this world is connected with that world. For we read in Luke 10 and John 12 how these works here affect what goes on there. And Jesus said of his work here that he sees in his redemptive work that Satan, the devil, falls as lightning out of heaven. For these two worlds are both God's worlds. And it is the same God who created them and who rules in them. And it is the coming of Jesus, this person who had two natures, human and divine, who, according to the physician Luke, was born of a virgin who was so overshadowed by the Holy Spirit that she conceived and bore this child. And he became Emmanuel, God with us. That world joined to this world. Human beings began to understand new things. They have a new connection with something that gives them a vision and broadened horizons of things far beyond the momentary and the transitory and the temporary. We are not just mortal creatures. We have souls and spirits, we are beings destined for another world. And we should live in this one accordingly. I came from the Father, Jesus said. Come into this world. The disciples said, now you're speaking clearly. Indeed. He wanted us to be certain to know when he came, he came from another place. Well, you say that's a nice travelogue. Someone left one place, comes to another, returns. Much as the Spanish court listened to the returned Columbus who told them about the mysterious new world, 
or Marco Polo who brought back some silks and spices and perfumes from the Far East. And everyone was wide-eyed because they heard of things they never heard of before. We can treat Jesus this way. Except he said, now in reference to that other world, I am going to return and prepare a place for you. That where I am, you may be also. For he was concerned not only to redeem us and to bring to this world his teachings and his principles, he was concerned also about our destiny, for we will take the same trip that he took when he ascended and returned. And this child who came at Christmas opens our minds and our hearts to something that we never could have known. For he tells us about that world and how we've wanted to know. The ancient Egyptians buried so many things with their kings and leaders, chariots and, and wealth that they could use in the next life. I saw in the Far East as the, the people at their temples were bringing gifts and pictures of things that they would burn so that the smoke could go to those who were dead they might use these various facilities for things in the next life. In China, it's the same way. In the graves. Mankind has always wanted to know about that life. How to get there. What there will be. And Jesus comes and says, I've been there. The babe of Bethlehem, born of a virgin, is the very God himself. And we've seen him and heard him. And we're all on that journey. Makes a difference. The way we live here will never be the same once we catch the glimpse of the far country. It's like riding in a big ship. Let us say we're all together on this ship and we're on the way to Singapore. And the captain's voice comes over the loudspeaker and says, are you having a good time? Everybody said, yes. For the director of the social programs has taken good care of us. Are you eating well, says the captain. We said, yes like we do on all of the ships, more food than we can possibly consume. Are your accommodations good? They're wonderful. Well, he said, enjoy it. For I've decided that when we run out of food and we run out of energy sources for our engines, we'll just sink the ship. So meanwhile, enjoy yourselves. That's the way many people are living. This planet Earth is burning out its energy sources. 
And we are convinced that someday it will be no more. We're not sure when. But meanwhile, we'll enjoy ourselves. And death, by all means, is the end. For we've speculated, but there's no assurance. And then Jesus is born. And suddenly, there's another world documented in time. How should we then live? What happens to our, our perceptions of life, to our values, and to the standards that we set, the principles we confess? They're very much like the principles of physical law, aren't they? The, the way science functions. We, we go out into space as far as we can and we still function by the same rules. Why is that? Probably because one God is the creator of all. The whole universe functions by universal truth. And Jesus came to say that other world is just like this one in that respect. The laws, the rules, the principles, the values are the same there and here. And where you've lost it, I'm here to teach you. And where you've violated it, I'm here to redeem you. But you should live in this world as you will live in the next. He refused to change. He gave his life for it. And he says to us, follow me. That's Christmas. Two worlds come together at last with assurance, with challenge. And so in this world we have a responsibility and we change our conduct it was Jesus who came into this world and said I give you a new commandment now that I'm with you from that other world love one another that's Christmas let us talk of our traditions for a moment. This world at Christmas. That world he left, this world, he invaded with his spirit. It's never been the same. I want to talk for a minute about Santa Claus. You know about Santa Claus? Dr. Edward Seeley wrote an article several years ago, interesting study of Santa Claus. little baby born in the year 280 A.D. in a town called Patra in Italy along the Mediterranean coast. Fine young lad, loved the church, loved the scripture, studied, prayed, meditated. When he was young, his parents died and left him a substantial amount of money and wealth. And the young lad said, I, I cannot According to my faith, I cannot keep this for myself. 
And so he would listen and watch for opportunities to share it. And one story comes back, which has been documented in history, that there was a a family with three young girls, but it was a very poor, poor family, and the, the girls had no dowry to give to a young man who might want to marry them. And when Nicholas found out about it, he put some gold in a little sack, and he went over in the night and he threw it through the window. And so the oldest daughter could marry with a dowry. And he did this three times, and by that time the father found out who had done it. But he was pledged to secrecy, and so the story wasn't told until much later. You see, Nicholas believed that in as much as he did it to the least, he was doing it to Jesus. And as Jesus came to the poor, to the sick, to the downtrodden, to those who were unclean, so he reached out. He went to a monastery, finally, and he wasn't happy there. He wanted to be where the people were. And so Nicholas applied and was received into a pastoral task in a little city about 15 miles to the east called Myra. The people there learned to love him as he visited them and cared for them. And then the archbishop died. And by a strange set of circumstances, Nicholas became the archbishop of Myra. And there was a famine, and he bravely led his people through and spent his wealth on them and shared any time he had anything. And he led them through their trials, and he suffered and was persecuted. He became a confessor, one of those who did not suffer martyrdom, but was imprisoned for his faith. And it was Constantine, the emperor, who released him from prison, and he went back to become archbishop again in Myra. Then in 325, they held that great council of Nicaea. It was at Nicaea that the the true ecumenical creed was formulated, the one after which our Apostles' Creed is framed. And that creed is focused on the Trinity. And the Bishop of Myra, Nicholas, had a hand in writing that creed that states that there is one God in essence, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And through the ages, the church has confessed its faith in the words of that creed. And the faith of Nicholas was a deep faith that led him to be generous and kind, to practice that new commandment of love. For in his heart, Christmas was always, every day. It wasn't just a time of the year when he felt particularly generous. Well, he died on December 6th in 343. And in the 11th century, his remains were carried over to Italy, to a little town in southern Italy called Bari. 
And then the legends began about St. Nicholas. And the story came out of how he, he brought the gold to the needy and it turned into a story of, of dropping gold down a chimney that landed in some stockings hung in the fireplace. And in the 19th century, this story had gone across Europe and came to the Netherlands, where the Dutch had a nickname, a shortened version of Nicholas, Klaus, became Sinterklaas. And because of the Spanish influence in southern Holland, it was Santa Claus. And December 6th to this day is the day when gifts are given in many countries of Europe, because that's the day that St. Nicholas died. And so the story spread. The 19th century, Washington Irving told the story of a, of a very jolly little St. Nicholas with a tubby tummy who flew through the air and a sleigh drawn by reindeer. And a theologian, a professor at the Theological Seminary of New York, Clement Moore, wrote a story. "'Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. And out of that legend came Santa Claus, the ubiquitous Santa Claus. And our children ask, is there a Santa Claus? And like so many things at Christmas time, we've misinterpreted the origins and we've overlaid it with our own materialism, but Santa Claus. Remember this, Santa Claus, in the true sense of the word, was a man of God who understood completely what it meant that the two worlds came together in Bethlehem. For Jesus is the one who inspired Santa Claus, Saint Nicholas, to give and to share and to give mercifully to those who were undeserved because God had so loved him that he gave his son just for him. And this is the world where we practice the love of that world. And this is the world where Christians today become the channels of the grace of God and where we as his true disciples Rejoice to live as Jesus lived here among us. A world that needs us. A world that respects those who live by the principles they confess. Whatever we think of what goes on in the world and what its history looks like in all of its, its grim darkness beneath it, is the aching heart of human beings who really want to know 
God who recognize love when they see it and who respond with the bright lights and the great stars in the night and the songs of a Christmas season. The two worlds of Christmas, the time to reaffirm our faith and to rejoice in one who came as a redeemer and a friend. Life there, life here, one and the same, as the two worlds are joined in the hearts of all who receive Jesus, the child of Bethlehem. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the great traditions that we celebrate. But we thank you most of all for the truth in these traditions, for the coming of our Lord and the subsequent faith of your people, the demonstration of love in this world by you and by those who are faithful. We pray that we may be among those this season who speak not only of him, but who live a life that attracts those who recognize that you are a God of love and that your spirit is among all of us. So use us, give us your grace and receive our gratitude for your great gift. Through the babe of Bethlehem, we pray. Amen.